Interplanetary Podcast is alive! I'm joined on the podcast by Jamie Green, a science writer who has just released a book called The Possibility of Life, Searching for Kinship in the Cosmos. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Thank you so much. Uh, where, whereabouts in the world are you? Um, I'm in Connecticut. Connecticut. Well, that might yes. be that might be a first for the podcast. I think. <laughs> <laughs> What's the weather like? Is it nice out there in Connecticut? Today? Um, it's it's a little cloudy today, but we've gotten a little bit of sun, and it's it's going to start warming up tomorrow. Apparently, yeah, well, that's similar yeah. to similar to London. Then that's that's yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> has it been well? Uh, how's it going? How, has it been well received? Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been really wonderful to see it uh, making its way out into the world. I've gotten a couple of lovely reviews, but honestly, like the most exciting thing is when someone I don't know tweets about reading it. That's just so exciting to me that strangers are picking up my book and enjoying it. Yeah, and that uh, presumably this is uh, it's been a long time in the making. I mean, books don't tend to happen quickly. Oh yeah, I mean, I. Signed the contract for this book in the spring of 2019, um, but you know had been working on the book proposal for a year before that. But also, like in some ways, this is sort of like 11 or 12 years in the making. That was when I first started writing about this topic when I was in graduate school um, and trying to figure out how I could write about it. And started learning about you know I was in graduate school for writing, I should say, mm. um, and but like started learning about astronomy in a way that I could write about it rather than just enjoying it as as a lay person. Is is astronomy a side hustle of you or or have you kind of uh, you know studied it to as a, as an actual kind you know qualification or or, or university? No, yeah. yeah. I I uh my undergrad degree is in theater and creative writing and my graduate degree is in creative writing. So, you know, I have I have no degree in this, but I come at these questions as a writer. I've always loved science and I've always felt comfortable understanding it. Um I don't know if I would have gone into science as a career if growing up I had understood what a career as a scientist looks like. That's something I only learned when I started writing about science and getting to know scientists and, you know, learning how a PhD works and, and all of that. I really had no models for that as a mm. kid. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I took that when I was in graduate school, I took one undergrad astronomy class on exoplanets and astrobiology. And that's basically the extent of my academic background. Mm. But, um, you know, writing this book, I kind of wished that I could get like five different PhDs just to <laughs> yeah. to cover everything in the book. But instead, you know, I had I had a couple of years to research and write it. You you talked to quite a few experts during the making of this book. I yeah, yeah. And that was really fun, like figuring out what kind of research would go into the book, because I, I work really hard to not be scared of reading scientific literature. And I did read a good bit of it sort of as background for this. But I found that because I wasn't looking at the results of a single study or, you know, the specifics of how a specific molecule is found on another planet, like I, I really wanted the bigger picture. And so I loved getting to talk to researchers about their work, because also for this book, I wanted to push them past the hypotheses and predictions that you can make in a scientific article, which are, you know, one step ahead of what we know really try to get them to speculate a little farther than they would in the lab. But, you know, what's the stuff that they think about? What, what are the big questions that they hope that their work is contributing to? 
Yeah, when, when you started writing this book, did you right from the start have a vision about where it would end up, or did the, or did the book and the and the idea of 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 how the book ended up looking sort of develop as as you develop the idea? I always had the big picture structure in mind because it goes um, not exactly chronologically, but sort of developmentally. So if we're thinking like, what are the things that we, what are the questions that we need to ask in order to imagine alien life? It, it sort of made itself apparent to me that we start with the origin of life because in order to know what life might be like, if there's life elsewhere, we need to know how it arises in general. Then there's a chapter on planets, because if you want to think about where life might be, you need to think about where it could be. And then it goes animals, which ended up being a chapter about evolution, people, which is sort of a chapter about intelligence, but it's like a chapter about how we recognize peers, you know, mm. in aliens and then technology and then making contact. So it's sort of an evolutionary trajectory, um, but it just those those buckets or containers always felt clear to me and the order felt clear to me um even though it does mean we sort of don't meet any aliens until the third chapter <laughs> yeah. that was just a risk i had to take for the the inherent logic of the book but then as for what happened in each chapter that was largely discoveries that i made while i was researching that i knew what general questions i wanted to ask um but it a lot of it was shaped by which science fiction books or movies or TV shows, I found that um, really showed interesting ways of imagining answers to these questions. And also like where my conversations with scientists led me because I, I went into this with a lot of questions, you know, but I didn't know what kind of answers I was going to get. Yeah. Well, is there a particular favorite science fiction version of an alien that you liked before or maybe liked after writing this book? One that was new to me that I really, really fell in love with was um, from China Mieville's book, Embassy Town, which was new to me and came in pretty late uh, in the research. Like every so often I would ask on Twitter or sort of trawl on Reddit looking for recommendations for sci-fi books that have interesting aliens or an, a particular sort of planet that I was looking for to see representations of in fiction. And I realized that every time I asked this, someone said, oh, you have to read Embassy Town. So I was like, okay, I will. Um, but, you know, I sort of thought that the shape of the book was ironed out. But then it's just such a fascinating book with really cool um, imaginings of alien language and how a language might be comprehensible to humans but still very very alien to mm. us you know not just in a lot a lot of alien languages are really just different versions of human languages you know and and are something that humans can learn the same way that, that they would learn any human language um but the the real combination of the true otherness and the accessibility and like you could just wrap your head around it. I find that to be a really pleasurable experience, you know, <laughs> yeah. like just at the edge of, of your imagination. So that was probably the alien who was new to me in researching the book that I was most excited about. Um, I haven't done the math, but I think the sci-fi I write about is probably roughly a 50-50 split of books that I knew and loved beforehand and new, probably less. It's probably a bit more new books. Um, 
but that was also just such a fun part of the research. It's like, oh, I have to go work. Gonna go read an Octavia Butler book now. Oh no, you know, yeah. <laughs> I have to go watch Contact. How terrible. Yeah, I mean, I, I, Contact's a very interesting one, isn't it? I mean, obviously, Carl Sagan is is a is a behemoth amongst these kind of uh, yeah. think, thinking about alien life. You know, he's one of the first NASA exobiologist etc etc so is is carl sagan actually a a big influence on you because he's also a very decent writer as well isn't he oh yeah i mean he's he's a huge influence on me when i was in high school i worked at a bookstore that would let us um borrow any book that we had at least two copies of because they wanted us to be you know pretty well read and so that was how i read contact and cosmos um for the first time and you know i was also I loved science fiction and I loved science. So he was really a perfect fit for me. But I think also just his approach, the combination of scientific rigor and romanticism, you know, I I think that that is a huge influence to me. And one of the most probably, yeah, the most meaningful interview that I was able to do for the book was with his widow and collaborator, Andrewian, who, um, you know, co-wrote, contact co-produced cosmos you know she's the the beauty of his writing is also indicative of the beauty of her writing um and she's really the the standard bearer of his legacy as well so getting to talk to her about their work and getting to include that in the book felt felt really meaningful to me yeah, she's a, she's a wonderful person in interview i have to say you almost feel like crying when she's whenever she's talking oh, it's so moving yeah no, I, I, there's a moment in the book that I definitely teared up. And it was so wonderful because it was brought about by the fact that we were talking. I was here in my office in my house and my son was, the playroom is right on the other side of the door that's behind me. And at some point she could hear him, you know, shouting mm. or playing or whatever. And I think he was maybe about two and a half at the time. And then a little while later when she was talking about what she imagined it would be like to see an alien because one of the interesting things about contact is that we don't see the alien when we meet the alien he is appearing in the form of the main character's father um sort of to to make him feel accessible to her but Anne told me that that was a decision of carl's that you should never show the alien because whenever you um sort of reduce down the unknowns and the possibilities a, it's going to be disappointing, <laughs> and B, it's going to be a human version of of that thing. And so she told me that it was, you know, important to him that you never see the alien. And so then when we were talking a little while after she had heard my son in the hallway and was like very sweet about it, you know, um, she described how she imagines seeing an alien as the feeling of seeing her baby for the first time after she gave birth, that combination of Oh, of course, that's what you look like, and I never could have imagined you. But mm. the inevitability of that, and I just, I felt like the presence of my kid on the other side of the door had sort of led us to that version of that. Maybe it's because she had heard him. Maybe because you know we we had had this moment sort of of connection as mothers that that's the language she talked about that in. But that just felt. Um, I mean, I definitely choked up when she was talking about that because it's like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, mm. you know? Um, and and I think a lot of what her work has been and what Carl Sagan's work was and a lot of the work that I write about and, and hope to do is like 
getting just a, a tiny, tiny sliver of that feeling when we come to know the universe and science at all. You know, I definitely had moments of, of that sort of awe in the learning and research that I did for the book as well, even though I did not meet an alien. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I did. I mean, listening to you then, I, I was thinking about the difference between when writers write about, um, and, and Carl Sagan's right, by the way, there's plenty of films that have been <laughs> ruined by seeing the alien. Um, but the, 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 But I was thinking about the difference between, in science fiction, that idea of, of describing the alien and having an alien to, as a kind of means of of exploring story or exploring human nature, or mm-hmm. alien as in an as in an alien exploring the science of what an alien could be. And do do do, do you yourself have that distinction between you know the, 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 the I guess the motivations of the of the actual writer? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think. At least in all of the books that I write about, because also not only do I not have a PhD in astronomy or science, I am not, I don't have a PhD in science fiction studies. Mm. You know, I haven't read all the science fiction that there is. Um, but in the books that I've written about and in the books that I've read, you know, just in my own reading, um, I think in just about every example, the aliens exist to further the story. I mean, I think a lot about Ted Chang's work and Story of Your Life, which is what the movie Arrival was based on. Um, and I actually talked to Ted about this because as I, I was doing an early draft of, of that section of the book and I'm just sort of like free writing and typing and I'm raising some questions and talking about them. And then I found myself typing the sentence when I asked Chang, he said, and I was like, well, I guess I have to try to interview him because that's where I was yeah. like, oh, I guess it, because for the most part, I didn't talk to a lot of the science fiction writers because I wanted the work to speak for itself and to be able to interpret the work, um, you know, in the ways that it felt meaningful to me. But so I did interview him because um, something I was very curious about was the aliens in Arrival, the aliens in Story of Your Life, are often cited to me by scientists as um, their favorite example of aliens in sci-fi because they really seem very alien. And so I, something I was curious about and I asked him was, um, especially in the book, the aliens are very mysterious. We don't know their motivations. And I asked him, I said, do you know their motivations? Like, do they have interiority for you as characters? And right away he said, no, absolutely not. That he wanted them to be alien. And in order for them to be very alien to the reader, they had to be alien to him as well. And so it's not a story about what might aliens be like. It's the aliens serve a purpose for the human story. Um, and I think for the most part, whether aliens in a story are characters, are people that um, either have interiority or that the human characters have relationships with, or when the alien is this opaque other against which the human story happens, these are all stories about people and their relationships. And it's like a bonus when there's interesting scientific speculation. Like one of my favorite books that I write about is Sue Burke's novel, Semiosis, um, where the alien character is a sentient plant. 
And he's, yeah. he's a fascinating creature and he has first person point of view sections, but it's very extrapolated from the science of, of, from the botany that we know, from the ways that we know plants perceive and um, engage with their environments. And she, she worked very hard to make those extrapolations plausible, just like, you know, when we talk about hard sci-fi, it's extrapolating from technology. Like this is hard botany sci-fi all the way. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's a story about people. It's a story about different kinds of people, about building relationships across gaps of difference. Um, I, at least for me, like the, the books are either, are hopefully both rather than either or. I'm looking at your chapter structure now, and obviously it, I, the way that you described it earlier on in terms of origins, planets, animals, people, technology, contact, and it, you've, you've got this kind of, what you know, to me that does seem like, I guess how I, I might tackle it, it's got that kind of, definitely got the um, the, the logic there. Um, yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned quite early on something, uh, the, the Drake equation, of which, yeah. which of course is back in this, I guess in this realm of thinking about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, extraterrestrials, that, that, that still stands as one of the kind of sort of most important aspects of it, that and Fermi paradox and a few other things. But the Drake, yeah. but the Drake, do you find the Drake? Did you find the Drake equation a sort of useful tool to sort of navigate through the book, or, or is it something that you, that you have a, a, a like a, a strange relationship with, perhaps? No, I have that strange relationship with the Fermi paradox, and I was actually really proud of myself that I wrote the whole book without mentioning it <laughs> because I feel like it's in early writings of mine on this topic. I definitely use the Fermi paradox as as it's, it's very often an opening, you know, in 1950, whatever, Enrico Fermi and some friends at Los Alamos were sitting around the diner talking about, uh, there was like this New Yorker cartoon about flying saucers and Fermi was pretty quiet. And then he looks up from some scribblings he's been doing on a napkin and he says, where is everybody? Right. And that, that's this semi-apocryphal origin of this idea that if life is common in the universe and we have reasonable reason to think that we would not be the first because earth is not the youngest planet or the oldest planet or whatever so there would be time for these uh other civilizations to to become very advanced and spread through the galaxy why haven't we seen anyone right so that's the fermi paradox and i am i think part of the reason i didn't bring that in was that my whole argument for the book was not to think about it in terms of odds and explanations and and whether or not but just imagining the possibilities and also the fermi paradox has been written about a lot (laughs) um there are plenty of books about that and i you know as as a non-scientist it was challenging to figure out where my part of this big conversation was that there are so many books on this topic like what do i as a non-scientist have to bring to it um, so the Fermi paradox has started to feel a little, a little rote to me, um, because also there are so many assumptions baked into it. Like, well, why would they colonize? Why would they make themselves apparent to us? Like there could be an underground city on Mars and we wouldn't know. So there's no proof that they're not here. The Drake equation, on the other hand, I very late in the process realized had sort of been an implicit guide for my logic for the structure because 
just like, should I like, do you think, should I get into what the Drake equation yeah, is? Yeah, no, that, yeah, yeah, no, go for it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely okay. explain so, the Drake equation. Yeah. So the, the Drake equation um, is this basically equation, but it it is not meant to be solved for an answer. It's sort of, um, it was actually created as like an agenda setting exercise for an early SETI meeting in like 1961. Um, and Frank Drake wrote this equation on the blackboard to sort of figure out what were the things that needed to be talked about. So that if you're trying to figure out the number of civilizations in the galaxy who might be sending out signals that we could detect, right? Because in order to uh, figure out if SETI, the search for those signals, is a viable scientific project, you want to sort of have an estimate of like, should there be anyone out there whose signals we can receive? So he wrote this on the board. Um, and I'm, <laughs> I have a little cheat sheet on my phone in my notes app <laughs> so that I don't have to memorize absolutely everything, which includes not messing up the factors in the Drake equation. <laughs> Every time someone asks me a question in an interview that I don't know off the top of my head, it gets added to the cheat sheet. So I can tell you the closest habitable planet is around the star Proxima Centauri, 4.2 mm -hmm. light years away. Mm -hmm. um, okay. <laughs> so the Drake equation um, is basically where you multiply all of these factors together that determine the number of signaling civilizations. And those factors are the average rate of star formation, the fraction of stars that have planets. And so when you multiply something by a fraction, it gets smaller, right? Um, the average number of planets that could support life, the fraction of those planets that do develop life, then the fraction of those planets where life develops intelligence, the fraction of intelligent civilizations that develop communication. And then you multiply all that by the average um, lifespan of a civilization, the time that they're sending out signals. So it doesn't mean that they destroy themselves in nuclear war. It might be that they stop using radio waves, you know. Um, and that is to, that was for Drake. Like, okay, we need to talk about these, un, these some knowns and some unknowns to speak. Like, this is all the questions wrapped up in the question of who's out there. And I realized that I basically did the same thing with my book, that these are all the questions that are wrapped up in the question of what might life be like. It's both a little bit infuriating, isn't it? Because, it, of course, every single part of the Drake equation seems to be, you know, pretty unanswerable, in, like, at the moment. But there's the odd one we, that's we, we we're making progress. Yeah. yeah, we know uh, the average rate of star formation, and we actually now know the fraction of stars that have planets. Hmm. So when Drake wrote this, we had no idea. Um, because the first planet around a sun-like star was found in 1995, which blows me away how recent that mm, was. Yeah. Uh, but now, you know, something like over 5,000 planets have been confirmed around stars, which sounds like a small number, but compared to the number of stars that we've observed and the limitations of the methods of planet detection, we now know that more more stars have planets than don't that if you point to any star in the sky odds are there's a planet around it which is amazing mm. i think like i love i love knowing that so we are narrowing down some of the uh these factors although like you know the number of planets that could support life that has so many questions wrapped up within it because it's not saying that 
the fraction of planets or the average number of planets that are like Earth. We don't know enough about life to know what the actual constraints are, what the actual requirements are. We just know what life on Earth needs, but we we only have one example, so that's one of the big challenges. Well, yeah, I mean that's uh, what I was doing a couple of weeks ago. I mean, of course, if if they find life on on right. Jupiter's moons, then it's like it, it's like suddenly that number goes rocketing through the roof, right? It's it's your, you've suddenly yeah. it's not just gold. You know, most people thought about the Goldilocks zone, but no one was really thinking about oceans in you know outer gas giant planets and things like that. So you know, they, 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 those numbers can still swing quite wildly, can't they? Yeah, and and similarly within the Goldilocks zone, if we look at Venus, which is technically in the habitable zone, is almost exactly the same size as Earth, was probably, when they first formed, probably looked a lot like Earth. Does not look a lot like Earth now, does not seem very mm. um, hospitable. And so what happened there and like what determines... Yeah that diverging you know there are probably a lot more habitable planets that we wouldn't think of orbiting you know um gas giants technically out of the habitable zone of the star but either getting heat from the gravitational tug of the planet or volcanism or whatever but there are also probably lots of planets that right now check the boxes for habitable which is you know size composition distance from the star but there are so many other factors that can swing things one way or the other yeah, I mean, I, I noticed that you mentioned the kind of rare, the rare Earth mm. book, and and I, I that was always one for me as well, where it was like, yeah, they, it, Earth is rare, and and then it's like, you know, obviously that it kind that's kind of implicit in the in the Drake equation, but it's also it, it's it's definitely worth drilling down into. Yeah, and and you know, I only talk about rare Earth in the epilogue because one of the things I really wanted to do in this book was avoid the discussion of odds and probabilities and likelihood because that shuts down the possibilities, right? And like we see with the Drake equation, it's really a lot of estimating based on hunches. You mm. can make a very reasonable argument for the Drake equation equaling one, which is us, or the Drake equation equaling billions and billions. You know, there's so much room for, um, personal interpretation so i didn't and those books exist rare earth exists and in the gosh like 35 years since that book almost um there have been lots of arguments and counter arguments um and i, I wanted to try taking the, the conversation out of the realm of odds and probabilities and looking at the possibilities instead and looking at um you know what are the different ways that life might be? What are the different things that we need to understand in order to imagine that richly? Um, but in the epilogue, I do come back to rare earth a little bit because it's sort of about, you know, I start with the Drake equation and then I end with rare earth. So those are both um, frameworks for thinking about odds and probabilities. But, you know, a lot of the scientists who I interviewed offered ways to think around the constraints that the authors of, of Rare Earth put forth, you know, um, that when we think about all of the factors, all of the, the weird special things about Earth that seem to be vital to life here, we don't know if they're vital to all life. Like if all life needs 
a Jupiter in the outer solar system and a very large moon. You know, our moon is, is a, a freak of nature um, and has proven to be very important to life on Earth. But we don't know that, you know, that life doesn't find a way if you don't have a big moon that was formed by a giant impact and all of that. Mm. Yeah, I, I always think things like technology would be really difficult if we didn't have things like uh, asteroids killing off dinosaurs and giving us the time to have oil and things like that. Right. So, and it's like you, you, there's there's so many hundreds and hundreds of factors, aren't there? And I, I and I, I can see why you've 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 kind of avoided getting bogged down in 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 essentially what is an an infinite list, isn't it, of possibilities and yeah, and it's you know like. Yes, like without fossil fuels, what would we have done? If the dinosaurs hadn't gone extinct, would mammals ever have come to, to prominence? You know, there there's an argument that it would have just taken about 30 million more years for the environment, for the climate to become inhospitable to, uh, to dinosaurs. Or would there be intelligent dinosaurs walking around now? And would they have found some other way to power a civilization without bones and forests turning into coal and oil and everything. Um, and I think that those thought experiments are fascinating because they show all the, the interconnectedness of life. They really help me appreciate the history of life on Earth and humanity and just the, the specificity of life. That life here, I mean, even I um, recently read or listen to the audiobook of, which I say just because it's a wonderful audiobook, of uh, Merlin Sheldrake's book about fungi and learning that we would not have plants on land if it weren't for the symbiotic relationship that they have with networks of fungi. And it's like, what? What mm. if fungi hadn't evolved? Would we just have, like, like, like what, what does that mean? You know, like, Okay, so then all of these sci-fi books and movies that imagine other planets with green plants on land. Are fungi like a necessary or sort of inevitable part of evolution or are they a fluke that we have on Earth? Like forget dinosaurs and and monkeys like mm. and fossil fuels. Like if you don't have fungi, you don't have any of that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because the, the, the tree of life is, you've got, really only a few few things down at the bottom you, like the funguses the bacteria the animals and the plants and that's pretty much it <laughs> and then yeah anything and it, but there, there must be you know there's bound to be lots of other variations on on that on that theme or yeah, is there exactly I mean, yeah, yeah. right and we don't know like in in my chapter called animals i mentioned at the start that like if we're assuming that a, an alien ecosystem has animals and plants which is a huge assumption mm. you know like it works out really well here that we have these sort of large factories for turning solar energy into biological energy um and then all the uh, you know all the animals take advantage of that and depend on that and it's just this, this intensely interrelated web which like i know we learned this in elementary school the web of life but i just researching this book it really oh, really hit home yeah every time i think about it i do it, it kind of stresses me out that 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 you know oh, yeah. the animals and plants are, are in such a sim 
but not like in a symbiosis in terms of the food chain, but also creating the atmosphere, you know, like the, the whole world, it, you know, it, it, it doesn't just sort of, it's not a localized effect, is it? It's, it's you know, it's, it's a, a global effect that affects how the planet is. And in potentially, you know, it might be the difference between Venus and Earth, you know, the fact that you yeah, just, and, just and- happen to have plants and humans, at the plants and animals at the same time. But all of that is so like, it's so chicken and egg because, you know, we got oxygen in the atmosphere because of bacteria doing something about that, Mm. you know, billions of years ago. And then that created this uh, or made available this potent fuel uh, source for animal life. But all of that was only made possible by the fact that like two or so billion years ago, one uh, like bacteria gobbled up an archaea or maybe it was the other way around and came to enter this symbiotic relationship and that's why we have mitochondria and that's why any of our cells have complex structure or can generate enough energy for multicellularity. Like these loops are so amazing to me and, and th- these little events lead to these huge, um, these systems that are so interrelated and um each part is dependent on another that if you go back in time and change one thing the whole thing collapses but that doesn't mean that a different path wouldn't lead to a different complex interrelated system it just it i mean the fascinating question to me and the one that you know if there's an afterlife and they show up and they're like all right what do you want to ask this is like my big question like show me the alien world because just to know, like, do they also look like this? Is there mm. something inevitable, something sort of, is this just the best way for life to work? And so it tends to fall into these patterns and discover the same patterns, just like in convergent evolution, um, eyes with lenses are really effective. And so they've evolved, you know, our eyes and octopus eyes are structurally so similar, totally unrelated. These incredibly complex biological systems evolved independently because they are an ideal solution to the environmental problem of trying to make sense of the world with, you know, all of this electromagnetic radiation that's kicking around. So like maybe the complexity of the biosphere is like that, is maybe plants and fungi and animals are a great way to use the energy of a star and a planet to generate complex systems that are self-sustaining and evolve and get more and more complex and hold more and more energy and create all this novelty within the environment. Like maybe this is just a great way to do that. Just like there are reasons to argue that if there is, um, comp- you know, multicell- multicellular life on another world, um, being bilaterally symmetrical is, is if you have cell division, you're probably going to have bilateral symmetry. Like that, it's just sort of fundamental. There's no reason to think that having five digits on your hands is fundamental. You know, so there mm. there are things that it sort of goes in either way. Um, I read a book by Nick Lane, who's a a chemist who works a lot in the origin of life, and he has a book about how life uses energy, where he makes arguments for the the um, sort of benefit of having two sexes in in sexual reproduction or the necessity for death, that these are sort of like coded in how we use energy. But but 
then there are things that are probably not fundamental. I don't know. I just, I would love to know. But in the absence of being able to know, um, I liked getting to talk to scientists and tell me <laughs> all yeah. the reasoning behind all of this. Yeah, I, I, do you know what? I've, I, I've thought, I've pondered that about the, you know, the, imagine if you're in a spacecraft and you went to mm-hmm. a, a, you went to a, a, an exoplanet and actually saw an entire biosphere. I mean, clearly it's, it would be the most mind-blowing thing that has ever happened ever. But I, in some yeah. ways, would it be any different if you got virtual reality to a, to a point where you really couldn't tell the difference and it was realistic enough for you to believe that that's what had happened? <laughs> You're essentially doing the same sort of thing, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, my question then is like, how um, biased by human knowledge and life on Earth would the creation of that be? Like, I'm assuming we've got some sort of machine learning algorithm mm. that generates the possibilities for for life on, you know, the origin and evolution. There are so many factors and choices and possibilities that I have, a, I mean, you know, I'm ready to eat my hat on this, but I have a hard time. You would need a computer as big as the universe itself, mm. you know, mm. to um, to simulate that because I don't know how you scale that down. You know, like I know it wouldn't. I know I know computers don't have to be as big as the thing they're representing, but um, e- you know, even if you have a really uh, powerful machine learning algorithm determining that you're still training it on earth data yeah we don't have any other examples so as far as it extrapolated out other possibilities into other chemistries and whatnot um i that is a case where i would want to see nature's imagination where i wouldn't Mm. i wouldn't trust an ai imagination on that because it doesn't have all the data no, no, I, it's and, and my thought experiment anyway. Doug, Doug, I'm sure Douglas Adams <laughs> beat me to it, but anyway. <laughs> but uh, but the um, yeah, I, it's it's it is a really fascinating subject. I mean, was is there a in in terms of the the way that you're thinking about it? In in terms of the way that you're thinking about you know the the whole problem, and then sort of holding it up as a, a mirror to to how we are anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's is that you know is is that really one of the angles of the book where where you're sort of saying you know that, that here's all the possibilities of life, but actually you know this is this is what's happening on Earth and and and, and you know look it is it's pretty incredible, right? Yeah, and I I think that's sort of like implicit. It's like tangled up in the in the whole book because like when you're learning about how other planets form you understand earth in a new context and when you you know it's all about when we uh search for life on other worlds because we both in terms of science and in terms of the meaning we make of it we want a broader context within which to understand life on earth you know um scientifically to know like it just like everything we were just talking about like is this average is this standard or is this a fluke um you know what are the 
factors that have determined how life is on Earth. Like we don't know because we have nothing to compare it to. And similarly, we're we're really lacking context for making meaning of all of this. You know, um, are we special? Are we rare? Things like that. Um, so you know, when I, if we want to to ask, um, would life on another world have plants and animals? That requires understanding why life on Earth has plants and animals and how that mm -hmm. came about. Um, and similarly, but a little bit more metaphysically or existentially, when we look at imaginings of alien technology, that's really imagining possible futures for Earth because it's always more advanced than us. And so like, what are the different ways that a society can evolve? So part of what I'm saying and doing in the book is showing that understanding life on Earth and, and humanity is always implicit in this work, the scientific work and the sci-fi work. But um, I think there is also like a, a more on the nose part of that argument in the book, which is like, this is really about understanding ourselves better. And that's also what the experience of writing the book was for me, that I thought I wanted to write about aliens. And I realized that the things that were most interesting and felt, felt most important to me in the research and the writing reflected that. Is there a part, is there a part of the book that you're sort of, you were kind of most proud of or, or, or you found kind of almost most shocking when you actually kind of realized it or, or, or wrote about um, it? I mean, the part I'm most proud of, this is just in terms of like writing craft, but the, the opening of the sixth chapter, the last chapter, which is about imagining different versions of making contact. I am um, obviously like I open with, contact Carl Sagan's book. The, the chapter isn't named after it, but it's not not named mm. after it. Um, <laughs> and and I found myself sort of moving back and forth between Sagan's scientific work, the book and movie of contact, and the field of study as it is now. And then when I went back to edit it, I was like, oh, I like how, how I moved back and forth there. I have no idea how I did that. That's great. <laughs> it's like it was a really interesting um, realization, you know, because this is my first book, it's the first book I've ever written, and realizing that I would do things that I wouldn't remember how I did them, and so trying to do them again, I'll be starting from scratch um, in a lot of ways. So that was like an interesting craft moment for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, although I have, you know, I, I once, oh, I wish I remembered who said this, but I've read someone talking about writing a book as like one of the cool things about it is that it inherently exceeds what you are able to do at any one time because it's this collaboration of different moments, different versions of yourself in time. There's the you who drafts it, the you who comes back and revises it and develops it and edits it. So any given page has probably had, you know, three, four or five different versions of me working on mm. it. And it's a collaboration. It's like the um, collective intelligence and ability of all of those different versions of yourself. Yeah, spread um, over time. That is very interesting. Yeah. That's super cool. I, yeah, that's, that's yeah. really cool. Yeah. And that, that feels really true to me. So just like figuring out what it's like to write a book, what it requires and how I do it was, you know. Isn't it, cr isn't it crazy that some mitochondria found its way into a, into something and then, and then that eventually after a few billion years led to a book. comes, you know, pops out as a book. It's just, yeah. it's insane, isn't it? That it's, it's, it's amazing to me. And like something I've really come to resonate with is 
the idea that life is, um, you know, while we do see a really clear distinction between life and not life and what's alive and what's not alive, um, that life is just a continuation of this process of complexification and creating novelty within the universe that has been going since the Big Bang. That there's all this energy in the universe and it has always made new things. It made particles and atoms and molecules and clouds and stars and planets and then rocks and water and cells and it just gets more and more complex and these you know physics finds these new ways of doing things with energy and matter and what conscious animals do is sort of take on that burden ourselves mm. and start making new things whether that's art or language or babies or friendship or science you know new frameworks within which to understand it's just the idea of novelty and creativity as being fundamental to the universe um, and connected through physics and biology and consciousness. Um, yeah, it's all thanks to that yeah, little mitochondria I, too. Yeah, and it, yeah, I do, it's always when when people connect it to entropy as well, when it's that, yeah. that sort of crazy where we where entropy is getting higher, yet somehow life is more ordered but eventually it will become less <laughs> it's like it's it's like it's the universe has found a way to kind of accelerate entropy it's just it's just yeah it's crazy that yeah I, I, I love all those i love all those sort of aspects of it that that mm -hmm. in some ways life is inevitable if if you kind of just take it on sort of weird first principles that that energy yeah. energy needs to get used up entropy needs to be working on it and it, it, it's it, it, you you kind of you've got no choice almost but yeah, yeah and with, when planet formation and all those kind of things exactly so, yeah, it's I'd, all just like spinning and coalescing you yeah know? yeah it's yeah. it's it's uh it's an amazing thing if the book's already out so yeah. everyone should uh, everyone should immediately go out and and, and, and get a coffee <laughs> yes please <Yeah. laughs> i can't i can't argue with that <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's it, it's obviously something we discuss quite a lot it's it's it's, it's definitely one of the most popular uh, things in our discord channel is talking about you know is talking about life and you know occasionally people will put in papers particularly mm -hmm. I, I like the ideas of civilized you know the different types of civilization as well you know those quiet civilizations and loud yeah. civilizations and and all those yeah elements. and that's and that's something that i really wanted to dig into in the technology chapter like the idea of our visions of advancement are so focused on technology and focused on capitalism um and like coming out of European culture and like how does that change the search for life but also for the possible futures that we imagine yeah I think it's always clear that that whatever century you live in your 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 vision of what <laughs> of what can be is so totally distorted by yeah by yeah, yeah your cultural heritage and everything else mm -hmm. I mean look, listen to the music that we that we make you know, we have, yeah. we have court cases because our songs almost sound identical. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Well, 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 thanks very much. I, I've taken up a lot of your time, but yeah, it's, it's a really, it, obviously it's a really amazing subject. I'm glad you've got to write a book about it. It's something you're clearly Thank you. passionate about. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I love it. And uh, yeah, yeah, find a book. <laughs>